Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Happy New Year. Please subscribe and leave us a review if you like what you hear. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I am fascinated by stories. I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help with your website, marketing materials, resume, proposal, or any kind of writing, look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. We can help. On the heels of my interview with Court Wakefield last week, who underwent fertility treatment and a NICU stay with their wife and daughter. This week's interview with Carol Gavani treads similar topics. Carol survived secondary infertility and pregnancy loss, ending up with two children from seven pregnancies. When Carol's son Henry finally arrived, he had an NICU stay because he was so small. As a biracial Korean American and raised by a single mom who spoke limited English, Carol had a hard time fitting in as a young girl. In addition, Carol's only sister, Wanda, died when she was in her late 20s. Carol and her husband were inspired by their walk with secondary infertility to found Asha Blooms, a handcrafted, purposeful jewelry company. Now, let's meet Carol. Hello, Carol. Thank you so much for joining my podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Marie. It's wonderful to meet you in person on audio and video. I know. It's how it goes these days, right? I know. Yeah. So you live in Seattle. Is that right? I am actually just outside of Seattle. So let's start out by, first of all, you can tell us about your family right now, who's in your family and a little bit about your children. Yeah. So uh, my family consists of myself and my husband, and then I've got two kids. Ophelia is seven and Henry is three. Oh, I love that name. That's wonderful. Ophelia. Oh, thank you. Have you met any other Ophelias? I don't think so. I know we've met a couple pets (laughs) (laughs) named Ophelia. People always reference the song that came out a few years ago by the Lumineers, which I love. And Shakespeare, of course. I mean, that's where it came originally, right? Exactly. Yep. You got it. Are you a Shakespeare lover? I appreciate Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And so we grappled with the name because she's a very fierce but interesting character in Hamlet. Uh Uh-huh. And she has kind of a tragic ending if you look at it, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were kind of like, do we really want to to name our child this name? But I think the other traits kind of won out, which were it's a beautiful name. She's very passionate and she's loyal. And so these are all great things, too. And so we didn't want kind of like the bad to override the other traits. And so it's not because of Hamlet that we named our daughter Ophelia, but there's always that connection. I appreciate Shakespeare. We both do, but it's it's not just because of Hamlet that that we named our daughter Ophelia. It's I mean, it's really a, a powerful decision to name a child, isn't it? It like, is. I, I know. Like I remember when our son, I think I shared with you that we had a 24 weeker and when he was yes. born, we knew we wanted to use the name Christopher, but we also wanted to use my husband's deceased father's name Hugh as a middle name. But we really grappled because he was, you know, so tiny and he was given a 50% chance mm-hmm. of survival. So we didn't know if we should use the name Hugh or not, you know, because he had died. You know, in the end, we did. We decided that he yes. was one of his angels, you know, but it's, you know, mm. it's a huge responsibility to name children. It is. It is. Yeah. I love the name Hugh, by the way. That was on my list for ah, Henry. That would yeah. be a really fun first name. For, I mean, it's very common in, in, the, in the UK where my husband's from, but not so frequent here. Let's go back to your childhood, Carol, and tell us about your childhood. Where were you born and where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? So I was born in Sacramento, California. And most of my childhood was spent in Southern California. I was raised by a single mom. So me, my mom, older sister. And at this point, my mom had invited her mother to come join us and live here in the States. So my mother is from Korea and my father was in the military. And so that's how they met. They actually met on base in Seoul. And my sister was born in Korea. My dad was not in the picture. My parents got divorced when I was very, very young. So it was just a household of women, Hmm. um, us four, four ladies. So it was a matriarchal environment. Absolutely. Yes. What did you enjoy doing as a child? I loved reading. I could get lost in books and just like be on my own adventure. 
I also loved writing, um, making up stories. I think as I grew up a little bit more, so we're talking like middle school, high school, I love dancing. I did a dance team on my high school dance squad. Yeah, so those were the things that I enjoyed. What was it like growing up in a second generation immigrant family? Oh, yeah. So that was very challenging, I have to say. You know, the two adults in my household, so grandma and my mom, um, English was not their first language. Grandma could not speak English at all. A lot of the like the paperwork and just all of the school things come to you. Signing a rental agreement comes to you just so you can kind of glance it over. And I'm talking about when I got a little bit older, mm-hmm. when my mom finally bought a home when I was a young adult, like I had to look over all the paperwork. So I would say it was a mix of you have to grow up, I think, a little bit faster than the norm, because a lot of that bills come to you, you have to look it over just you're just kind of the second set of eyes. Mm -hmm. But you're not just the second set. I think you're kind of the primary set. Um, Even though you're not legally an adult, I grew up a little bit faster. And then there's also a part of me that felt a little resentful, because other kids I saw did not have to do that. They weren't sitting there translating things. And keep in mind, my mom did marry an American, so she can speak English. Granted, she speaks English with an accent. Mm-hmm. She's been in this country for over 40 years. But I would say it was it was difficult. And because I am mixed race, I, there was also kind of that, like, not fully like fitting in into mm-hmm. either quote world. Mm. So when when you're with a bunch of Asian people, particularly with a bunch of Korean people, you're spotted that you are not kind of, you know, <laughs> quote, one of them. Right. I look different. And then when I'm, of course, with a bunch of Caucasian or white people, I present more Asian than I do white. And so it's just, it was, um, it was very interesting. And I think that shaped a lot of who I a lot of my childhood and who I kind of became as an, as an adult. And I have to say, interestingly enough, my husband is also of mixed race. And I sometimes I look at that and I'm like, wow, I don't know if that was coincidence. We share very mm. similar backgrounds. We each have one parent who speaks with an accent who came to this country in the 70s looking for a better life. And so there's just a lot of parallel in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when I met him and I I knew right away he was mixed, I thought, wow, we might share a similar journey. He's Mm -hmm. from the Midwest. So it's it's a little different. So yeah, it was childhood was was good. Times were tough. My mom was a poker dealer. She did that for like 30 years. So it's a minimum wage job. Mm -hmm. um, And you you earn money by tip. I think which is why I'm so generous now when I go to a restaurant or something or, you know, get my hair done. It's I understand that this is more than just being kind. It's part of their livelihood. Looking back, I would say childhood was was good, but also hard simultaneously. So good and and hard. Yeah. Well, it's great that you found someone who can kind of understand your own childhood experiences. And yes, that's, that's wonderful. And it must have been especially hard for you during adolescence, not feeling like you really fit in in either category. Yeah, yeah, probably. I think so. But I think I always knew I would kind of find my way. Like I always had that inner knowing of like, you know, this may not be my people right now, mm-hmm. but I will find those people. And sure enough, I think I I did. I did find those people in college. Mm -hmm. Kind of an interesting anecdote was I joined an Asian American sorority in college because when I was in high school, there were not very Asian American people. I was like maybe one of five. And even though I'm I'm half white, so I'm 50% white, like it just didn't feel. And again, this is back in the day where you couldn't check off two boxes. Like I remember applying to college you could only check one. And I thought, what the heck am I going to do? I look, yeah. And that's actually changed because there's a lot more mixed race couples and children, but not, not then. And this was like 20 years ago. So long ago, but like not that long ago, right? When you think about it. So joining the Asian American sorority, I'm, I'm glad I did it. I did not find my people there. Uh, I actually found my people when I went to go study abroad, which I find very interesting. So like-minded people who are like, I want to kind of put myself in a different culture. I lived with my host family. This was in Spain. I did not know a lick of Spanish. That's really where I found my my tribe. And then coming back, I had roommates and that was that was also wonderful. 
a long tangent there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So did you find your people among the Spanish people or about or the other foreigners who were there or the other foreigners? So the uh, other yeah. students. Uh-huh. So we were all from different colleges across the US. No one, everyone came alone. It's not like you sign up to go with your best friend. Like you really are on your own journey because you want the experience, whether you wanted language immersion or you just wanted to learn about the culture or just do something different out of your comfort zone. People really appreciated, I found trying new things, embracing the different parts of the culture, wanting to be uncomfortable at times. Like they really wanted, I think, personal growth. Now that I'm like a real adult, like I can look back and say, (laughs) wow, that's really what that experience was. I I didn't know at the time, you know, Uh because I was in college, if I could really pinpoint that that's what I was looking for, but it was real personal growth. I think when you bring a lot of those kind of people together, absolutely, you're going to mesh and blend well. And I have to say, it's been over 20 years. And so there's a group of four of us girls, one, you know, splits her time between Egypt and LA, one's in the Midwest, another's on the East Coast, and I'm here on the West Coast. And we all manage to keep in touch. We've gone to each other's weddings. We may not speak every day, but there's that connection that we had from that time that's so strong. And it's such a strong bond. And I'm so grateful for it. Like I cherish those friendships. Yeah, I can relate to that too, with the friends that I made when I lived in Japan. Let's move into your grit and resilience story. So I had my first child very easily. When my husband and I decided we wanted to have a baby, we on the first try, I got pregnant. So naturally, I thought having subsequent children would be so just as easy, because why not? I do have to say I had a very tough delivery. I had an emergency cesarean, a lot of trauma regarding that. I felt like I had some PTSD. I definitely had some postpartum anxiety. I remember coming home from the hospital with my daughter saying to my husband, I, I'm done. Like that was so mm. hard. We're one and done. I'm not going to have another baby. But of course you fall in love with your child. And four months in, I was like, we've got to have another baby. <laughs> four months <laughs> um, in. Oh, wow. Yes. My love was so overflowing. Like mm. it's so hard to describe into words. I mean, maybe if you're a parent, you could, you could understand, but for all the people out there, but it, it was like beyond myself. I just, I had to have another child because it was so amazing, this experience. And so before my kid turned one, we started trying for baby two, nothing was happening. And I kind of had a little feeling, huh? Is something going on here? I've always listened to my gut, not always, usually, but like I have a pretty strong intuition. And so I thought that was kind of when the first whispers began of, uh, maybe this is not going to be as easy. And so I got pregnant. That baby did not come to fruition. And so I just thought, gosh, I really should go get checked out. Got checked out, ran some tests just through my regular doctor. And I remember the phone call before I was set to move here to Seattle. She said to me, I'm so sorry, Carol, but your tests have come back. They ran like a, some fertility hormone tests. She's like, there's nothing I can do for you here. If you want to have another baby, you're going to have to go straight to a reproductive endocrinologist, a fertility clinic. Mm-hmm. Like your numbers are so low. There's just nothing I could do. So I was devastated. My jaw dropped. I couldn't believe it. Everything was so ha- like easy with Ophelia. Why would it not be easy with baby two? And it's not like I had waited five years. This is, we're talking kind of, again, she was not even a year old. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't quite understand what was happening. But what was happening was I had a diagnosis of diminished ovarian reserve. For my age, I had lower egg quantity and quality. And so when I finally got to the fertility clinic up here, ran more tests, And they just said, you know, I think we can try one cycle of IUI, which is kind of a more, a non-invasive of the reproductive technologies, or we can go straight to IVF. And for people who are unfamiliar, IVF is pretty invasive. It's, you live your life in cycles of, you know, shooting yourself up in your stomach with a bunch of hormones and then waiting. And then they retrieve all the eggs from you, which is no easy feat. Um, Usually you're put under for that. Then you wake up and you find out how many eggs there were. Then they have to put everything into a Petri dish and fertilize them with the sperm that your husband just gave and wait, wait to see if these are going to really grow into viable embryos. Some people do genetic screening on top of that. And then if all looks okay, then you put them back inside, you transfer them 
and you hope that that will um, implant and you will have a healthy baby at the end. I did rounds of IVF because I wanted to bank my eggs so we could do some screening. And the reason I did that is because right before I had started any treatment, I got pregnant naturally. Unfortunately, it turned out it was an ectopic pregnancy. Oh my gosh. And my husband was out of town when this all went down. So I remember, and I had just moved here. I had been here for maybe two months. So I didn't know anyone. And I remember taking my daughter. She must have been two, one or two at the time. And I went to the emergency room. First, I went to urgent care. They said, we can't help you because you're pregnant. So you have to go to, you know, the emergency room. And Mm -hmm. I went there and I just remember we were there for hours and they couldn't find the heartbeat, but I was in so much pain and they thought maybe it's ectopic because they just were unable to locate the baby. By this time, I had been kind of in with the fertility clinic, you know, getting ready to start a a cycle. And ultimately what happened was it was an ectopic, nothing burst, thankfully, but I, I was given a couple doses of methotrexate, which is typically a drug given for cancer patients to stop the cells from growing, to stop Mm -hmm. my pregnancy from growing. So the idea is you stop it and then you miscarry at home. And that's what I did. Was your husband gone during this whole time or did he, was he able to come back? He was able to come back. Thankfully, he was able to come back for this, but this, gosh, I still remember it was like, I remember going in, checking my HCG hormone levels. This is the pregnancy hormone levels hoping that they were going down after taking the methotrexate. I remember going in on Christmas Eve, the New Year's Eve, because it's kind of a special time of year. And I just remember thinking, this is so depressing. This is just so, it's supposed to be such a happy time, but I'm not. I have to say, I so after that, you know, you kind of wait your body to get back to its levels. I did do a round of IVF. IVF worked. However, that the ending was not a happy ending. So what happened with that is there was a heartbeat. This is maybe six weeks in, seven weeks in. But what they saw was, and when you're at the fertility clinic, you go in every few days just to make sure things are okay. You get your, you get your blood work checked until you can finally graduate from the fertility clinic and go to your regular OB. And so I was elated, elated to see a heartbeat. I mean, Everyone was elated in that fertility clinic, but unfortunately the embryo had implanted a millimeter away from my cesarean section scar inside. And this was right, right after the ectopic had happened, right? So ectopic, no go. Mm -hmm. And then this, and that was a no go. And that was, that's actually what, one of the things that really broke me. I just, it was awful. They basically said, and I was sent from doctor to another Mm -hmm. expert, all in the span of maybe 48 hours. They were like, time, we can't waste time. We have to find out what we're going to do. Ultimately, I was sent to a radiologist just to get super good imagery, I think, and to get their opinion and to see if there's any way we could save the baby. And their opinion was, unfortunately, no. If this baby grows in the location that it is, it is detrimental to your health and we always pick the mom over the baby, right? Right, right. Especially when it's not that far long. So still first trimester, I'm like eight weeks at this time. Oh my gosh. And so again, you know, I, I remember I miscarried again at home and that was very traumatic. All of a sudden you stand up and it's just a gush, a gush of blood and contents, contents of baby. And then you know, you go back in to get checked. And in my case, not all the contents were removed. So they had to go in and do a, essentially a DNC, a procedure to go in and remove everything. Cause that if you let it stay there, it can cause an infection, which again, could be detrimental to your health. They have the foresight though. And when I say they, I mean, I had at this time, I had like basically a team of doctors uh-huh. working on my behalf. Uh-huh. They had the foresight to say, we need to have to do a DNC, not in the doctor's office, not at the fertility clinic, but at the hospital. And I'm so glad they did. Because what happened was they did the DNC, but I continued to bleed. I wouldn't stop bleeding. I was blood transfusion level at this time. They had tried like a couple different interventions to save my uterus and to Mm -hmm. save my life. Mm -hmm. And at this point, they said, they came in and they said, I'm so sorry, Carol, but if this next intervention does not work, we are going to have to give you a hysterectomy because you're just bleeding. It's just too much blood. Could they figure out why you were bleeding? No, they could not. They could not. 
you know, I just wonder if I'm kind of prone to this bleeding because when I, when I had my daughter, the reason why I had the emergency cesarean was all of a sudden I just, I, I, I had almost an eruption of blood when I was in labor hmm. and they thought at the time it was placental abruption. Uh-huh. Thank God it wasn't, but they could never pinpoint uh-huh. what the issue was. Something is going on, right? But uh-huh. but no one is, has been ever, ever able to say this is what's happening. And so anyway, they're able to save my uterus. Thank God that last intervention worked. And so I'm just very traumatized by this point. <laughs> I'm just thinking I'm never going to be able to have the second kid. Like, why is this happening to me? I, I don't think people understand, like when you kind of go through loss after loss, mm-hmm. after you see a heartbeat, it's like such a heavy grief. And I think in part, some of that, you know, I blamed myself. I blamed myself because I said I was never going to have a baby after I had Ophelia. Oh, you know, wow. like you go yeah. through cycles of like guilt. you cursed yourself um, or something. Yes. Yeah, right. After that, I did egg banking because we wanted to make sure any other transfers we did that the embryo was screened for any genetic abnormalities because my fertility clinic raised their hand and they just said, you know, you've gone through so much. The next one we do, if at all possible, we want to give you the best outcome. I was on board with that. We did some genetic screening on the embryos. And I should preface this. IVF is very, very expensive. My husband at the time, because at the time I was a stay-at-home mom, he was employed, obviously, and his medical insurance actually offered for whatever reason, I think it's because he was employed by the parent company was from Italy. I have a feeling it was a mistake, but it was a mistake in (laughs) our favor because we got IVF at no cost. Wow. I know. That's why I decided let's just bank them because I don't know what's going to happen the next calendar year. And sure enough, the next calendar year, they changed (gasps) that. It's so interesting (laughs) because an Italian company you would think would be Catholic and the Catholic church is totally against IVF. So that's fascinating. (laughs) So, so fascinating. Yes, I know. That's why I think it was an oversight. I just think they didn't look properly. Whoever like signed the papers. I'm glad you benefited from it. I did. I did. Because I don't want people out there thinking, oh, I can just do a few rounds of IVF and no big deal. It is actually, that's one of one of the main reasons why people, you know, if they have to use a reproductive technology, oftentimes they're unable to because it's so cost prohibitive. Yeah. You know, I had a couple losses. I had some interventions, some surgeries. Oh, and that's another thing I had to, after I did all the egg banking, before they transferred any more embryos, they said, we need you to have a surgery to fix the defect inside. So again, more trauma for me. Uh I just felt like it was never ending. It Uh was just constantly going on. And I think when you're going through infertility, something that many people may not know is this is all you think about 24 hours Mm -hmm. a day, right? You, it consumes you. It's like you're addicted to, you're addicted to it. Mm -hmm. And I actually became addicted to hope, Mm. the hope that the next thing, the next intervention, the next IVF, the the next genetic screening was going to help me to -hmm. complete my family. Cause all I wanted was two kids, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, right. My sisters and my journeys sort of overlapped yours. She went through IVF and mm. IUI. And so I know a lot about IUI and IVF. And I remember her feeling like every time an embryo did not take, that it was like Mm -hmm. a miscarriage. Even if, you know, she never got a positive pregnancy test, she felt like it was a miscarriage every single time. And I, at the same time, I went through four miscarriages. So I can relate to you totally on the miscarriage part. Oh my gosh. Yes. So, and it was also secondary infertility. It was after I had my you know, my son, I was a 24 weeker and oh, my, I can't imagine. I, so my story was it took, it did take, I was not as lucky as you. It, it took me like a year to get pregnant with him. And mm. then we waited because we didn't know if he'd have a lot of developmental problems. So we waited sure. for a while. And then when we started trying, then I had, I think I had one or two miscarriages. I'm sure this probably happened to you as well. I came to fear ultrasounds because that yes. was often how I would find out that there was no heartbeat. And so then we were set, to, we went to a reproductive endocrinologist as well. And they were recommending IVF and other things. They were actually recommending surrogacy at that point. And I felt like I have a child. There was part of me, and I, I yeah, I want you to talk a little bit about this as well. It's like, I don't feel like I should go to all these lengths, you know, because I do have a child and I'm lucky to have a child. But we ended up doing like, you know, kind of low dose Clomid and things like that, other things. Yep. 
then I got pregnant again and had another miscarriage while I was seeing the reproductive endocrinologist. And then, and then finally I got pregnant again. Then we were able to carry to term. But the funny thing about my story is that many years later, when I was 41, I got pregnant by complete accident. <laughs> oh my gosh, Marie. So I know. And I was still breastfeeding my my toddler. And yeah, it was like wow. it was a complete and we were plat we were done. We were like, okay, we're we're done with two children. Yeah. And I felt like after all the lengths I'd gone to, that I felt like he was meant to be, you know, even though yeah. we had planned to have it. Yeah. So he's 14 now. <laughs> oh my goodness. So I love it. I love it. So he's like my bonus baby. But I was like, I mean, I was completely gobsmacked because I tried so hard. But did you ever feel that as well? Like, oh, I shouldn't keep doing this because I already have a baby. Or did you feel that in the infertility community at all? Or was that hard? Oh, oh my God. T- totally. So mm-hmm. I, I kept going back to not only do I blame myself, but why, like, why am I trying so hard? I already have one kid who's mm. amazing. I have to say, I went to a couple infertility meetings. So there's an infertility group called Resolve, who I love. And I went to a couple of their, you know, group get togethers. I, I felt very out of place. Mm-hmm. Again, no one at the table, except for me had a baby. Yeah, so Everyone else is totally desperate just to get the one. And here I am, I have the one. So who am I to sit there at the table Mm -hmm. and talk about my problems? So I feel like it's actually, it's very lonely. It's lonely to go through infertility in general. And I think it's it's a different kind of loneliness when you have secondary because there's, as far as I know, there's like no groups for secondary infertility Mm, yet. Right. Yeah. People look at you and they're just like, well, you got the one, you know, so just be yeah. happy. There sh- totally should be groups because not only is it hard on you, but it's hard on the other people as well, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there should be groups for that. Because I, I mean, I know a lot of people who've dealt with secondary infertility more than primary infertility. Yes. Yeah. Now, now that I've like talked about it, I feel like I do know quite a few people who've had the same. But w- what I have known, right, if I had never talked about my own experience. So I, yeah, right. we just got to keep talking about it. Right, exactly. Now you said you said you had a total of seven pregnancies. You continued yes. to, wow. So that that's kind of the grit story, like when I look back. So Ophelia was baby number one, or pregnancy number one. Henry was pregnancy number seven. So in between wow. those years, and my kids are four years apart. Mm-hmm. So in that four-year period, I had a lot of loss. My body was worn down. I was mentally depleted. And I just didn't feel like carrying on, but you know, somehow you find a way you find a way and you just, it's like day by day, one, one foot in front of the next. Well, it sounds like you knew that you were meant to have another baby. I remember one time, I think it was after my first or second miscarriage and my husband and I went out for a date night. He was saying to me, maybe we should keep trying because he saw what it was doing to me. And mm. I got really upset by that because I said, you know, both of us come from, I had two siblings, he had two siblings. Like, I really want Chris to have a sibling. And I really yeah. felt like it was, I, I don't know, I could see that this was part of my future. And you must have had that same feeling. I did. I, not only did I want the second child, like for me and for another little baby to love on and all of that, but I really wanted to gift my daughter the gift of a sibling. Yes. I grew up with a sibling. I really wanted that you know, for her. And so there was a point actually at the very end of when I was finally pregnant with Henry, there was an episode where I thought I did lose him. Mm. And at this point, I had already talked to a surrogacy agency in California, because at the time, surrogacy was illegal in Washington State. Was it really? You're kidding. Yes, I know. So Really? Oh, my gosh. I know. So crazy. I had no idea. <laughs> it's legal now, but um, wow. just like recently. But yeah, at the time. And so I had the contracts in place. Like, I nothing was signed because it's, again, that's like, you want to talk about cost prohibitive. That's like mm. a whole other thing. Right. But this agency, like, everything was in place. Like, they have lawyers. They have all of it. So it's... It's just, that's what they did. They matched people up. But when I talked to them, I did not know that my final IVF had worked. I was talking to them as a precaution. Mm-hmm. And so th- I think that was the the lengths that I wanted to go to. Thank God, you know, I didn't have to. And so then you got pregnant with Henry. Yeah, I got pregnant with Henry and it was very touch and go. I had bleeding every now and again. 
you know, every morning you wake up and you're just, you're on eggshells, Mm -hmm. your heart beats, you're never at peace. You're never at rest Mm -hmm. because you always think because of all the others, you think, what if this doesn't make it? So I made it to 12 weeks. I made it to 13 weeks. And I told people the next week, I remember we flew out. It was Thanksgiving. I flew to Ohio. I was feeling good. I went to the bathroom. I stood up and blood just gushed, 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 gushed out of me. And my heart sank and I started, I just, I freaked out, Mm -hmm. but I held it together because there were other people in the house. I'm freaking out internally, right? Oh my gosh. So I just found my husband and I said, we have to go to the emergency room now. Mm -hmm. I remember we put a trash bag on the seat of the car. I just told my daughter, bye. My mom Mm -hmm. was also there. She had traveled with us to go to my in-laws, you know, for Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving. So I just said, what we will call you, but like something is happening. And I I didn't want them to worry, Mm -hmm. you know? So I, like I I held it together, but inside I was a complete mess. And so we go to the emergency room. I actually pass when I finally get admitted, not admitted, but when I finally get my own kind of room, this is even before the doctors came in. So a nurse is just kind of in and out I remember I had this uncontrollable urge to like pass something, oh, um, almost like God. you're having a baby. Yeah. And how, so far, I, how far along were you at this point? I, I was about 13 or 14 weeks. Uh-huh. Oh, man. So still early, but I, I passed something. So it was like a huge something. Oh, that must and have been I, so terrifying. So terrifying. And I'm this, at this moment, I'm now beyond hysterical. I remember looking down and I swear to God, it looked like a fetus. Uh It looked like a baby to me. And at this point, the nurse had come in and she took this and then I got into the robe and all that. And I was, I I gave up at this moment. I remember tears in my eyes. I just remember thinking, I looked over at my husband and I'm lying down and you're so vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. Not only because it's because of the experience, you think you've lost the baby, but you're also like half naked, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just such a place of vulnerability. And I, I remember looking at him and he took my hand and I just said, I am done. Like, I cannot do this anymore. Maybe we're a family of three, but I give up. Mm-hmm. I am done. It's just too much. Mm-hmm. Finally, I get to go back to the ultrasound technician and she says, I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to have your husband meet us here in the room after she saw what she saw on the screen. And when you go to the emergency room, you're actually separated when they take you for testing and all that in case the person who's brought you is you're in an abusive situation. Oh, really? So they separate you. Yeah. Even though I said nothing is happening, like this is my husband, Mm -hmm. there's no abuse. Wow. They they automatically separate you. It's like a precaution they take. Mm -hmm. And so she brought him back and she said, I still, I see a heartbeat. Oh my gosh. Wow. And I lost it again this time, like a happy, I can't believe it moment. And while we were there in Ohio, I had to connect with an OB while I was there to make sure I could fly back home to Seattle after that. And just to, you know, they just wanted to do more tests and I came back. And when I came back, my team here said, you are absolutely not allowed to fly again, <laughs> like stay home. <laughs> right. Starting around, I think week 20, I went in three times a week for testing. Cause at this mm-hmm. point I'm just, I'm a high risk pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to MFM mat- maternal fetal medicine. This is mm-hmm. the high risk doctors. And at week 27. So I, I now know, I now know intellectually that I've made it quite far, right? Because mm-hmm. like you had your own son at week 24, which I cannot imagine. So I'm, I'm at week 27. Mm-hmm. They said to me, looks like your baby has IUGR, mm-hmm. intrauterine growth restriction. They think that one of the former procedures to save my uterus oh. was now preventing proper blood flow to the baby. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. So I, again, I just was like, oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. Like, when is this going to be over? Mm-hmm. And they said, we have to prepare you for a NICU stay. And I just looked at that, her, I remember. And I said, I don't think I can do this. Like, mm-hmm. you don't know how much how much I've been through um, mm-hmm. to get to this point. And I'm so grateful it's week 27, but I can't, I don't know if I can do a NICU. And she said, you're going to have to, you're going you to have to find choice. it in yourself. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 She yeah. was like compassionate, but oh, also strict, good, like a, a combination of the two. She's like, yeah. you are going to have to find something within yourself. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to get it together because you have to for your baby. So at this point, 
again, I, I'm going in three times a week. They're monitoring me. I have IUGR. And now I'm at week 33. So now I know I have made it so far, mm-hmm. right? They say, your levels are all off. I have a feeling something is going on. Let's bring you into the hospital. You're going to check in, have your final dinner tonight with your family. You're going to stay here till you deliver your baby. And that's what happened. Two days later, he was born. I'm on 24-hour monitoring at this point. So even to go to the bathroom, you have to take all the nodes off, go to the bathroom, come back, yada, yada. You Mm -hmm. sleep with them. You're just in bed all day. And so I remember a nurse coming into me in the middle of the night so no one is with me. Husband is at home. It's like three the thirty. Baby, or I mean, he's with your daughter. Yes, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she said, "I need you to get on all fours because we've lost the baby's heartbeat." Oh so my god! And you're all I by yourself. Say, oh, I'm all by myself. And so I do that. <sighs> you know, she calls in more people to the room, and minutes are going. Like I think at this point, it's like sixty seconds, um, a minute and a half, and they say we have got to take her into surgery. We have got to get this baby out now. And so that's what they did. They wheeled me in. The team was already there because they had just come out of another emergency cesarean. Mm-hmm. So they were putting back, I guess, like all the, not utensils, all the, all the, <laughs> right. all the, you know, surgical tools and they uh-huh. were putting everything. So they were there, mm-hmm. they were in place. Uh-huh. I come in, it is very tense. The room is so tense. I later find out that they thought it was fetal demise because there was no time to prep for any kind of anesthesia or an epidural. They put me under, they said, we're going to have to put you under. And when, when you wake up, you're going to have your baby. And I know they said that. So I would kind of go to sleep, like with hopeful thoughts, but I know they're also really hoping that the baby would be alive. The nurse held my hand. I will never forget this. Mm. She held my hand and she said, hold my hand, Carol, just go to sleep now. You know, when you wake up, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. I, I I know she didn't believe that, but she put on her hopeful nurse, you know, facade. And sure enough, I woke up hours later, my husband is there and he just looks at me and he says, Henry is here. He's in the NICU. Wow. And that's, that's the story. Oh, yeah. I, for my, for my first pregnancy, I was put under as well. And kind of, oh, yeah. Cause I was, oh, uh, yeah. I, long story. I'll send you the podcast I did a few weeks ago for my birthday where I told that story. But yeah, it was. I would love to hear it. Yeah. yeah, he was so in distress. And so I, yeah, very similar experience. So he was 33 weeks. Is that right? Yep. 33 weeks. Yeah. But he was very, um, he but very little. Yeah. I mean, little for a 33 weeker, I suppose he was three pounds, uh, 14 ounces. So almost four pounds. So little, but like, I know babies are born a pound, a pound and a half. So big compared to when we were in the NICU, I, I really felt like any stay in the NICU is horrible. Yeah. It's like, even, you know, even people who were there for only a week had, you know, they could have had equally as traumatic experiences as we did. So, you know, yeah, we we never imagined we could have gotten through 117 days. But you just like, like you said, you just yeah. do what you have to do, right? So Gosh. 23 days yeah. is, you know, horrible. So yeah, it I, was. I, yeah, I'm sure that you, <laughs> I'm sure you often felt that like, oh, look at that tiny baby over there. But it's horrible, no matter what and traumatic. Yes. And after everything that yeah. you went through, it's just, yeah. Wow. So it's actually, he did pretty well that if he was there for 23 days, that as a 30, he did weeks. amazingly yeah, well. I, yeah. And I, I actually, I think that's part of his personality. Maybe your son too. I know you were there for over a hundred days. Henry started walking at like 10 months. He's, wow. He was seven weeks early, you know, wow. like yeah. he just really wanted to move, I think. Mm-hmm. And so he did really well at the NICU, always hungry. Wow, waking that's up before good. they could feed him. He was trying yeah. to catch up, catch up on that. Exactly. Right? Does he still like to eat? He does. He loves to eat. He loves <laughs> to run. I mean, looking at him now, you would never, never know, uh-huh. you know, that yeah. he, he was born a little on the early side. How old is he now? He is three and a half. Three and a half. Well, congratulations, yeah. Carol. That's just such Thank a... Thank you. So the other, I wanted to back up a little bit. You were fairly new to the area when you were going through all this. Did you get any support during your infertility period or... Who, who did you call on for support? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, so at this point, I had joined a mom's group. I met some people, you know, through the mom's group. There was one woman in particular, my friend Liz. Hi, Liz. She's <laughs> back home in Australia now. Oh. Um, but she she came here and she joined. And I happened to meet her through like a mom's group event. She wasn't even a part of it, but 
She was here because her husband got offered a like a couple year stay through Boeing because he worked for Boeing in Australia. And then he did. So they wanted the experience, like the American experience. So I really loved her. And she actually, she was kind of my rock, I think. And I miss her so much here. I remember she would drive me to the NICU. She didn't hold the baby, but she would just be with me. She knit so she was a crafter and and a maker. And so she knit all these adorable, tiny size like hats and just little booties for him. And so I would say she was my in-person rock. However, I did rely on my girlfriends a lot. And I felt like I kind of had to rotate through them a little Mm -hmm, bit mm -hmm. because the thing with infertility is it's so like, it's chronic. It it doesn't go away after two months. It's so heavy, right? For the person going through it. And so I really relied on my girlfriends who live all, you know, across the States, but I almost felt like I had to, I was conscientious of the time and like my own energy that I was giving out to them. I didn't want them to feel bad or like totally responsible for the the hard the hard times if that makes any sense yeah totally did you lose any friends during the process yeah gosh no one's ever asked me that before yeah there was someone I had to put up a boundary with in the process a very very dear friend of mine and I look back with nothing but fond memories of Mm. our time together but when I was kind of really going through the infertility I just I couldn't engage in that friendship anymore like for my own reasons. So I kind of compartmentalized that friendship and we don't ha- communicate anymore. I had an incident with a friend who was pregnant during the time that I just had a miscarriage. She was going to come visit. Her family lived in this part of like in Oregon. She was going to come visit and we had arranged to meet up. And when she called me up, I told her that I'd had a miscarriage and she could not deal with it. So she canceled the get together. Uh, and and I said, oh, we could get together these times. It was like Thanksgiving and she didn't mm-hmm. seem to want to see me. You know, we're still in contact, you know, by social media and, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, yeah. And I had a few of those things where people just could not I mean, I don't know if you felt this way at all, but after I kept having miscarriages, I kind of stopped telling most people. Yeah. Because, you know, I felt like after the first one, I had a lot of support, but it was kind of like people didn't know how to deal with it <laughs> after they kept, yeah. you know what I mean? Absolutely. I, I completely relate yeah. to that. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's almost better in some ways just to keep it to yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe just to like one or two friends and that's it and not tell everyone. Right. Yeah. And then I had yeah. the other the other memory I have is I was part of a, a women's group at the time. And so my first miscarriage was I was the farthest along. I was like 13 weeks. The other ones I was earlier, but two of the other women were pregnant in that group. And so I went to the women's group right after my miscarriage and they were all talking about you know, being pregnant and babies. And there was no sensitivity whatsoever to me sitting there. Uh- None oh, at all. I'm so sorry. So, you know, I left out the back door and the woman who was hosting was not pregnant. She was, you know, the one that she's the one I'm still in touch with of all of them. But <laughs> of course. But yes, exactly. And she, you know, and I told her what was going on. But, you know, I did confront them later on. I told them I was really, really hurting and nobody really checked in on me. I mean, I understand mm-hmm. they wanted to talk about being pregnant, but there was absolutely no sensitivity to the fact that I'd had a miscarriage, none whatsoever. And so when I said that, they were all all defensive. They were like, well, we oh. wanted to talk about being it's like, oh my God. So yeah, oh, my, my God. My friendships are very different now than they were when I was in my early 30s. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, and the other thing that I really feel like now, all of my friends, without exception, I think, all of my close friends have all experienced a loss in one way or another. And also, I mean, a lot of the closest friends I have are from people I know from the NICU, you know, and I I think that this is one question I wanted to ask you that I observed that a lot of people who had babies in the NICU also had a lot of infertility. In fact, with my first pregnancy, I had huge gushes like you described. Mm -hmm. I felt like I passed huge clots of blood and now they think that that it was weakening my cervix. You know, by the time I had my second child, I went to see a a perinatologist as well. And he thought that it was because the cervix was weakening. But anyway, the people who I got to know later on through volunteering through the NICU, they understood, you know, they were the ones who understood the loss. A number of them had lost preemies. They got it. And so all of the people that I'm closest to right now, if they not necessarily have lost a child, but they have lost 
you know, a loved one, or they've dealt with cancer, or they've, you know what I mean? Right. They've, they've dealt with loss. And that's kind of a central theme for my friendship right now. I learned a lot through the experience of what kind of friends I want to surround myself with. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It's it's different now, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what you did as a result of your journey with infertility about your business. Yeah. So the idea for Asha Blooms, which is my my small business, kind of came to me like all of a sudden. I felt like I was jolted awake by it. So we brought Henry home and my husband and I decided, not because the NICU said, otherwise they would have not released him, but we decided we would like watch him for 24 hours a day for like three months. Oh my we gosh. So like, wa- like watch afraid. him like, all the time. Yeah. So like, wow. it's like 2am and someone's on watch. Right. So what? like we did shifts. So this was the time that my husband took his paternity leave. He did not take it when Henry was in the NICU, which is why my friend Liz would drive me to the NICU after I dropped Ophelia off at preschool. So my husband at this time is doing his stay at home, you know, and I'm at home and we watched him. And this is when we were like, well, it like it hits you. Life is so fragile. You've got one shot at life. What do we want to do? Like now that we can finally breathe and not that all moments are certain, but now that he's home, he's healthy. He's okay. Yes, we are watching him all the time, but what do we want to do? And I had this idea to do jewelry that meant something to people. And I think I had the idea because when I was going through all my own stuff with the infertility, I tried all the services and I loved all the services like fertility acupuncture and yoga and meditation, you know, you name it. I tried it just in the hopes that like it would help me and help my body and help my mind. Cause I do believe they are connected. And during this time, I also bought myself a bracelet off of Etsy. It was just a regular, you know, a fertility bracelet. I still have it. It's amethyst. And I took it with me everywhere on my appointments, just everywhere I went. And even on my darkest days, I was aware of like where it was. Oh, it's in my purse. Oh, it's on the bathroom. Cause I didn't want to wear it today. Cause I'm so depressed. And so this little thing, I don't know. I felt like it brought me some hope and I, it was something I could hold it was the only thing I could hold out of all the things that I did. And it sort of just became like more than a good luck charm. It really became something much more impactful and meaningful. And so I pitched kind of my cockamamie idea to my husband and he was like, that's wonderful. Like what a wonderful sentiment. And so we said, let's, let's try it. And so that is actually what we do now. We both do it together. We have very different roles. He does all the back end stuff. I make the jewelry and I, you know, I come up with the intentions and all that, but Asha Blooms is handcrafted, purposeful jewelry. All the pieces have a meaning behind it. And it's really to acknowledge and empower you as the wearer. It's like your daily reminder that you can do hard things, that you are enough, that you are loved, that you are still standing. I wrote all these intentions for me when I was going through the infertility road years of of that journey. And that's what we've been doing. That is what we've been doing for a little over two years. It's evolved, you know, since we first launched, I actually first launched as fertility jewelry, Mm -hmm. but what I soon learned was I couldn't always be in that space because it was very traumatic Mm. and dark and just coming out of the NICU and being, you know, postpartum, I, I just, I wanted something different. And so we launched when Henry was just shy of a year old, but we just thought, let's try it. Let's see what happens. If anything, we can say that we've tried a business and do something that like really feeds our soul. So he he is all in about doing his own business and being an entrepreneur. And I'm all in about that too. But also I'm really into the meaning of what it means, you know, to marry the jewelry and the meaning together. I really love the purpose. Well, it's just absolutely gorgeous jewelry. I'm trying to figure out which one I want. <laughs> it's beautiful, beautiful. And I love, I love the names that you've given to each piece as well. Like... You can do hard things. Glennon Doyle, I am grateful. You are still standing. You are loved one day at a time. Yeah, they're just beautiful. Thank you. What have been some of the challenges and the challenges and joys of uh, running your own business? Oh my gosh, so many. I'll start with the challenges first. This is my first time running my own you know, business. So I don't have anyone kind of telling me what to do. I have no idea what's expected. It's kind of 
of like jumping in and knowing what you don't know. And I have to say, my husband and I launched way before we felt ready. And a part of that was because I was so tired of waiting. Like I felt like I had waited forever to get Henry. It really wasn't forever. It was only three years. I was tired of waiting. And I thought, you can learn so many things from a book, from a YouTube video. You can, I can join a coaching thing, but we're not really going to learn until we actually do the work. And that I think I'm so glad we launched when we did, because if we never did, I would still be thinking about launching, right? So we launched before we were ready. That was super challenging. I didn't know what I didn't know. I, I didn't know what to do every day. I just knew I had wonderful and beautiful things to sell. I wasn't really sure how to sell them. There was also a little bit of questioning from, for for example, like from my mom. My mom really didn't want to see me go to like a night market trying to sell my stuff. Her dream for me was different. She wanted to see me because, you know, she worked nights. She worked the graveyard shift in a casino. And so her dream for me was to go to college, which I did but to have a different kind of job, a like an easier job. It's a lot of manual work and hard work to get your table and to get your signage and to get your products and then to display it out. And it's cold, you know, sometimes at night and it, it can be hard. And she also said like some things about that. And so there was kind of dealing with that and trying to manage what I wanted to do with what she thought we should uh-huh. do. I think jewelry is very saturated. I had no idea how saturated it was until we got into it. Mm -hmm. That was like a big, big eye opener. And I think it's really easy to give up. Truthfully, I think Mm -hmm. it's really easy to throw in the towel because now that I've done both sides. So before this, I worked for 13 years in a corporate setting. My career was in advertising. Then I did a year of nonprofit. I'm I'm a very much a mission-driven person which is why I wanted to go into nonprofit, but I didn't want to go before because I was making all this money and then to drop, you know, to a different salary. And so I would say it is easier, especially in the beginning, just to go to a corporate job. You have the job role, right? Because you applied for it. So you kind of know what's expected of you. And then you get health insurance. Like that's one of the (laughs) things that kills me about our country. If you aren't employed through like an employer, a corporation, an organization, then you're on the hook. For, you're self-employed. So you are on the hook for your own health insurance. Mm-hmm. I like, I'm a good person. You know, I'm, I'm a productive citizen. How is that tied to my health insurance? I don't mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. but so it is right. So it is in the U S and so it's challenging. Oh, and another thing I'm an introverted person. So I really felt like I was putting myself out there mm. when I said, this is what I'm doing to the world. I'm doing purposeful jewelry and I'm really selling the meaning like the pieces. Yes, they're beautiful and they're lovely and they're, they're simple in nature, but I'm not winning any design awards Mm -hmm. and that's okay. Like I, you know, it's again, it's all about the meaning and the intention of the piece and what it means to you. Like what is the meaning that it conveys to you? Mm -hmm. So many challenges I feel of doing a business and then you've actually got to sell it, right? You've got to sell it. And then sometimes people want to return it. I've had a couple returns and the first return I got, like my heart sank, but that's part of business. It's nothing personal. Mm-hmm. I, I've had, I've had like three returns. It's not a big deal in the grand scheme of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so many upsides too. Like I, I get to work with my husband. I know a lot of people would not want to work with their partner. <laughs> I feel like we make a good team. we make a good team. I get to work from home. I know some people don't like that, even though everyone is doing that now. There's a lot of upside and I get to do something like I I really enjoy, like it brings so much fulfillment to me Mm -hmm. personally. And I did not have that when I was working my, you know, my other jobs. Do you feel like you're successful at what you're doing so far? Are you still kind of trying to climb out of your commitments and debts and things? Yeah. So we've been able to bootstrap the whole thing ourselves, Mm -hmm. which is great. I still feel like we're building our audience. Mm -hmm. I still feel like we're, we're finding our people, you know, to kind of complete our circle, but it's growing. And so that is, that's always a good thing. Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like it's going to get better from here on out. Good. Well, I think that as a small business, I mean, I'm constantly thinking this way as well, that really success for me is like how many more clients I get 
you know, mm-hmm. and even if it's not, I because I was in the corporate world for almost 30 years and mm. and had insurance, you know, I was like, yeah. Oh, God, I yeah. do know. <laughs> exactly. And so, but I also have realized that I stayed in a number of jobs in toxic environments because mm-hmm. of those golden handcuffs, because I was the breadwinner in the family and mm-hmm. I felt like I stuck around and, you know, I'd always thought about starting my own business. So I'm kind of in a similar situation that I'm taking a risk and it's scary, but I see what's out there kind of like, you know, that we knew we were meant to have a second yeah. child, right? You know, you yes. can see what's out there. And I think that's really exciting. Even though the jewelry market is saturated, I think that what you're doing is different because Mm -hmm. these are so meaningful, you know, and the story behind it is different than some average jewelry company, you know, were you a jewelry maker before you started this or what? Oh God, no, that's the whole thing. So I was not, when the idea came to me, my husband suggested, I just go take, I, I take some classes and I find out everything that I can to see if I like it, if, if I can actually make something like if, if it's there, And so that's what I did. I took some classes, you know, group classes, some private classes, just so I could kind of fast track things and get that really that one-on-one learning. And I just also interviewed people in the city so I could find out like, who do you source from? Sourcing to me is uber important. I want to find out it is like, I want to make sure it's come from as ethical as possible. Who do you source from? You know, where are you getting your metals from? What about the gemstones? How do you cut this and things like that? So yeah, no, I had no prior experience, which is why I felt like it was so hard in the beginning. And I have to say the the first pieces that I put out, I did earrings, bracelets, necklaces. Again, it was all for fertility, Mm -hmm. all fertility related look very different than what I have now, because that's how it goes, right? Like the first few things you do probably aren't going to be the best, but that is how you learn, which is exactly why I wanted to go live before I ever felt ready. And so are most of your sales made at like marketplaces, like in person or online? So that is such a great question. In holiday, it is all made in person. We do have online presence. Of course, we have our own store, We do have presence on Etsy and Amazon Handmade, but it's mostly direct to consumer for the online piece. This year, it's totally different because we're in the time of COVID, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm just doing what I can to push the online sales. We are in a few boutiques, mostly here in the Pacific Northwest. So a few in Oregon, a few here in Washington, but I'm, I am doubling down on concentrating efforts on the online sales. Yeah. You had to regroup totally. Yeah, exactly. I did. It's really exciting what you're doing. I'm really excited for you. And let's talk a little bit about your work to advocate for pro-family legislation and um, how you've gotten involved that way. Because infertility affected me so strongly and I felt such, it's more than just being moved. Like it changed my life. It changed my perspective on life. It was such a difficult and dark journey. I really wanted to be a voice for other people who were unable to speak during their time of darkness. And so every year, Resolve, which is the National Infertility Association, they go to D.C. and they meet with senators and representatives. So people in Congress for a whole day. And you have to sign up before you go. It's free or there may be like a nominal fee. And they set you up with an appointment, not this year of COVID, but last year. So 2019, I got to meet in person, Senator Murray, Senator Cantwell. So I live in the state of Washington. And then I also met several representatives who represent the state of Washington in D.C. And you are talking to them about pro-family legislation that you would like them to help pass, that you want them to vote in favor of. You're able to share your story a little bit. You're able to bring more than just your story. So because you're 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 coming in person. I I feel like Seattle's like one of the most furthest places away from DC. It's a big deal to show up Mm. in person. It's not just a phone call. It's not just a petition that's signed. It's like, I'm here. I've taken my own money, my own time. I'm staying at a hotel. Like I'm doing all this because I believe so strongly in these laws that need to be passed. And then you talk about the laws. So for example, some of the laws that we talked about in 2019 were, and it's probably still in the docket because it takes years to pass something, access to fertility treatment for everyone. I did not know this, but if you work for the federal government, you have no fertility coverage at all. That baffles my mind. 
as we know, fertility is so cost prohibitive, you know, fertility treatment, all because I work for the government, I I have no insurance coverage. That's crazy to Mm -hmm. me. And so that is a huge bill. And it's actually backed by Senator Cory Booker, who I love. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was very exciting that it finally got on the docket. We're also advocating for veterans and family health. So if you happen to have been injured while you were serving our country, and for some reason, your fertility was affected, that this bill would mean that you could get access to, I don't know, adoption or maybe sperm or egg donation or whatever it is to help you build your family as you see fit. We also talked about, it's called co-sponsoring every child, and it's basically an easier path to adoption. So I did not know this, and it's because I live in more progressive state, Washington, but there are some states in the U.S. where you can be denied adoption if you are like in a same-sex relationship or you are of a certain religion or maybe you're single and not married. So this would be a federal law that states everyone has access to adoption. It's an easier path from foster to adopt Mm -hmm. and you cannot discriminate because of your religion, sexual orientation, and yada, yada. It's very exciting to go. It's also very scary. It's intimidating. I went for two years in a row. I think at the end, you feel so empowered going and speaking to these people who really do listen to you. Aides will be there. Sometimes it's younger staff who may be in the room too. Sometimes you may not get to meet your senator or your person of Congress, but it's still valuable. Like showing up is still valuable and coming year after year, I think is valuable. This year, because of COVID, everyone just did a call-in day. Record-breaking numbers, I heard. Um, We'll see what what the landscape is like next year. I don't know if we'll be able to travel, but I think it's a very empowering move. And it's something I felt like I had to do for myself. Like I felt like I had to, again, provide a voice because I was out of it. I had had Henry. I just knew how dark it was. And also because I was able to get all that IVF like at no charge, Mm -hmm. you you know what I mean? Like, I just know how cost prohibitive it is. Fertility is a disease as it's recognized um, Mm -hmm. by the World Health Organization. So many people go through it. It's often a silent disease because we don't like to talk about it. There's shame associated with it. And I just felt like I had to do something. So I did. I'm so glad that you're doing that kind of work. Oh, I could just talk to you for for ages, Carol. (laughs) Yes, I know. Me too. You're so easy to chat with, Marie. I I just have a few more questions. So you said you were a reader when you were a kid. Are you still a reader? I am. And I do a lot of books on audio now. So I do Uh Audible. So a reader that way, but I'm still getting the information. But I love... probably good for your work. You could probably listen to yes. listen while you're doing jewelry and stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. So what are some books that you've enjoyed recently? For some reason, the first one that comes to mind is Becoming by Michelle uh-huh, Obama. Uh-huh. I don't know if you read that one. That oh, one's yes. so good. Oh, yes. And okay. I, went, I got to go see her when she was here in Portland too. So you did. Yeah. That's so yes. exciting. And have you listened to her podcast? Not yet. Oh my God. I love it. It's so, I mean, it's kind of like her tour when she had these conversations with people. So all of her podcasts, she invites guests on to talk about, you know, various things from parenting. Like she has her mom and her brother. She has Barack on one of the episodes. And mm-hmm. one of my favorites is with her girlfriends, her close girlfriends, you know, it's really, really worthwhile. I will check it out. I love a good podcast too, obviously. Yes, yes. And the other question I wanted to ask you is one of my books that I really, one of my favorite books in the last couple of years was a novel called Pachinko. Have you heard about Pachinko? I'm trying to remember the name of the woman who wrote it. She's Korean American. So it's basically about Korea. It's about Korea and Japan. It's a family saga about, you know, a lot of Koreans who actually ended up having to move to Japan. If you're interested in, in that kind of novel, I highly recommend yeah. it. Yeah. Really, really. Awesome. Cool. I, yeah. I have heard of it, but I will absolutely add it to my list. I'm an avid reader. So that's why I wanted to ask you the question. Uh, oh, got it. Yes. yes. If you ever need a book recommendation, I'm reading a really good book right now that my husband read. It's on the floor and I can't, it's by a guy <laughs> named John Boyne. It's an Irish <gasps> novel and it's really good. So. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. My final question is, is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? 
Gosh, you know, I'm going to go with the first thing that came to my mind and I'm going to say my mom. Yeah, she came to this country, married to her husband, my dad, with a little girl. Escape is too strong of a word, but my mom left my dad without knowing he was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. That's why she felt like she had to leave. She gave him many chances, I've heard, but it just was not going to work out. So she thought... I can stay and raise my two kids because by that time I was born or I can leave for the unknown and to make a life for these children. She chose the latter. He went to work. She took off in a U-Haul because she had secured an apartment in LA. A friend had helped her. She left base with tears streaming down her eyes and she made it work. She made it work for us. Wasn't always easy, but I have to say, so she's 73. Oh, and she just voted for the first time ever. (gasps) Really? Oh my gosh. Wow. That's great. I know. It's amazing. I'm just, I'm so happy. I'm happy. So, you know, she's experienced a lot. She went through divorce. Her life here was not what she anticipated. A lot of hard times because of her profession and just trying to make it work for us and raising, you know, mixed race kids. She did not know how to do that. Not that anyone knows how to do that, Mm -hmm. but like the resources available today are far different than they were 40 years ago. And she also experienced the death of a daughter. So my sister passed away over 10 years ago. Yeah, we didn't get to talk about that. You mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. My sister, um, she had a heart attack. I was in a wedding in upstate New York. She was in LA. She was in a Walgreens. So that's a drugstore for people who don't know. And she just collapsed. And she lived, though, for a a couple more days. She went to the hospital because, you know, an ambulance was called, but she had another one in the hospital and they could not save her. And I think about everything my mom went through, even with that. So when the hospital called her again, you know, because she went and then they called her again. So like two days later, keep in mind, no one told me. So I think (gasps) they didn't want to bother me. I think they just thought she's alive, like things are okay. And so I had no knowing until after she died. That's horrible. Yeah. And I could cry right now, but when she did ultimately pass, the hospital did not notify her. So my mom went not knowing that she had already passed. So when she went to the the desk, she said, where is so-and-so, you know, my sister's name, Mm -hmm. they pointed to the room and my mom went and she touched her and she was not alive. Oh my God. So if you can imagine. Oh, I'm so sorry. So going back to your story. Oh my gosh. Grit and resilience would be my mom. Yes, definitely. Does your mom live near you now? She is here, you know, alive and well. And I would say she is living her best life right now. Mm. So she moved. So we're from Southern California. She moved here a couple years ago. And so she lives five miles away from me. Oh, good which is amazing. Your children must give her so much joy now. Oh, yes, totally, totally. Yeah, she's so thrilled. Like I think her life has become a full circle moment of like now it's the joy part, you know, like really relishing in the joy. Oh, so I'm thrilled. I can't imagine going through that with your sister. I'm so close to my sister. I can't imagine what that must have been like for you. Oh, my God. Horrible. It was, it was, it was horrible. It was. How long did that happen before you started having your infertility issues? Several years, like 10 years, I I would say, because she passed when I was 27 and my infertility issues. So trying to have baby two, it was like 36, 37. Uh Oh, I'm so sorry. So sorry to hear that story. Thanks, Marie. It's just been such a pleasure to get to know you, Carol. You have such a story. Thank you so much for having me on. I love chatting with you. Yeah, I hope that we can stay in contact. And one of these days, I'm going to ask for a piece of jewelry as a gift for <laughs> some oh. occasion. Or oh, my gosh. Definitely. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so cool. much, Carol. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. You too. I could have spoken to Carol for so much longer. It's so refreshing to speak to someone who understands what it's like to have many miscarriages and who does not take pregnancy for granted. I bought an Asha Bloom's You Are Loved necklace this week for my mom, who celebrates her 81st birthday on Saturday. I want her to feel our love whenever she wears it, even though we can't hug her right now and have to stay distance. Next, I interview Amicieta Clark, who escaped the Civil War in Liberia when she was just 12. She adapted to life in New York City and excelled, getting a full scholarship to Cornell University. 
but she was diagnosed with myasthenia gravis, a rare autoimmune disease during her last year of law school, causing her to experience blurred and double vision and strength and balance problems. After overcoming her disease by changing her diet and lifestyle, Amicieta founded Clean Body Living, a holistic health coaching practice that helps women with autoimmune diseases and other chronic illnesses shift their mindset to own the power in their healing journey. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Look us up on fertilegroundcommunications.com.